I invite you to find Exodus chapter 34 in uh, the Bible you've brought with you, if you brought a Bible with you, Exodus 34. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you today, that's just fine. The words will be projected on the the screens up front here. We've been taking the last few weeks uh, simply to study God. Who is this God that we're here to worship? What is he like? And we're following along with Moses, um, who at a certain point in his journey asked God that he might see more of God than he had seen to that point. And God responds back to him with five descriptors of his own character. And we find those five things in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Last week, last Sunday, we took the first one. God is gracious. Excuse me. God is merciful. Today, we get to take God is gracious. What a beautiful theme for a beautiful Mother's Day weekend. We get to talk about God's grace. Okay, that's where we're headed. Now, if you're able and if you're willing, one more time to stand for the reading of the word. We're only going to read two verses. So I invite you to stand as we read Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6, talking today about the theme of God's grace. This is the word of God. Exodus 34, 5. The Lord descended in the cloud. And stood with him there, with Moses, that is, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. God, uh, we ask, and I ask on behalf of everyone gathered here and those who are joining us online, that you would be pleased to condescend to our level in our limited understanding to show us more today than we've seen so far of the beauty of who you are. We ask for Christ's sake and in his holy name. Amen. Please be seated. If God were only merciful, we would be content with that. And we would be so thankful. If all God did were show us mercy and not punish us for our sins against him, if that's all he did for us, that would still furnish us with enough material to fuel our worship forever, wouldn't it? That would be enough for us to sing his praises forever if all he was was merciful to us. If all the prodigal son's father did upon his wasteful son's return, if all the father did were say, okay, you can live here again. I will give you some bread every day. I will give you meaningful employment. It's okay if you stay here again. If that's all his father did, that would have been enough. That's all the son wanted. 
He would have been contented with just that. If all his dad did were just have mercy on him, take pity on him, and at least let him live there as one of the hired hands, that would have been enough. But that's not who his father was, is it? His father was merciful, but he wasn't only merciful. The father in this story is this indescribable wonder who is not content to only show mercy to his boy. He doesn't just begrudgingly let the boy come home. He unloads all of the treasures of his household upon this boy in an explosion of joy. He was merciful, but he wasn't only merciful. He was this other thing, too. He was this second thing that God says about himself at Exodus 34, 6. Merciful and gracious. What exactly does it mean that God is gracious? And what does it mean for us? That's where we're headed today. And the starting point for thinking about the grace of God is considering what we deserve. What we deserve from him. There are three main points today. They're listed on the outline that's in your bulletin. Three very simple points. Point one is what we deserve from God. Point two is what we receive from him instead. And point three is how we're changed by it. So what we deserve, what we receive, how we're changed. And we're starting here with what we deserve. We begin to understand the grace of God by understanding first what we deserve from God. We humans deserve the fury of his wrath. That's what we deserve. We deserve from God the fury of his wrath. And let's just admit, this is a reality that not many of us feel is true. Most of us acknowledge that it's true because we read about it in the scriptures. But there are very few of us who actually feel it in our being that we really do deserve the fury of God's wrath. And the reason is pretty simple. Most of us walk around with a view of God that's much too low. And a view of ourselves that's much too high. And when we hear that we as humans are deserving of the fury of God's wrath because of our sins against him, we say, what? That doesn't fit with my picture of God. No. Of course it doesn't. Because we do not regard our rejection of him and his commands as that big of a deal. We just don't. Therefore, we are astonished to hear a word like wrath applied to us. <laughs> us. That word is applied to us. Romans 1 and 2. How could wrath be upon us? We still cling to this notion that we're pretty good people. You know, we do community service. 
We give maybe large amounts of money to charity. When a storm goes through our neighborhood, we get out our chainsaw and our rake and we go help our neighbor until the job is done. What's all this talk about wrath? Wrath upon us, good suburban people just out there in the world being helpful. Martin Luther didn't get everything right. Martin Luther, at the end of his life, held some indefensible positions about the Jewish people. And we say, that's wrong. That's really wrong. We want to talk about where Martin Luther got it wrong. He had some wrong views about the Jewish people toward the end of his life. And and we want to call those things wrong. We want to point out where he's wrong. But we also want to point out where he got it right, where he got it really right. And he got it really right in this area of having this huge, towering view of who God is and the smallness of his own person. He understood. He was one of the ones that got it. God, you're massive. I can't understand you. And I'm, I am so small and I'm so sinful. And there just aren't many of us that get there. This feeling sense that we do deserve the fury of God's wrath because of our sin. And there's a trade-off. The extent to which we do not feel that we deserve wrath is the extent to which we will not feel the beauty of God's grace. Well, let's see if we can make some progress in feeling the truth of these things. One of the popular definitions of grace, very common definition of grace, you're listening to someone teach on grace, very common to hear someone say something like this, Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Now, that's partly true. It is his favor. That's what the word means. That's what the actual word that's in our text means. It means kindness, favor. That's true. Grace is God's favor. But it's not just unmerited favor. Unmerited favor would be like the dad who buys an ice cream cone for his child at the end of the day, and all the child has done all day is sit on the couch and watch Netflix. And the dad says, let's go out for ice cream. Child hasn't been weeding the garden, hasn't been doing laundry all day, hasn't been helpful in any way at all. And the father says, let's go out for ice cream. That's unmerited favor. Nothing done to deserve ice cream. Father simply being loving and kind. That is not what God's grace is like. The graciousness of God is different from that. It is not his unmerited favor. It is God's ill-merited favor. It is favor bestowed on those who deserve the opposite of favor. 
The true picture of the grace of God is the father who buys the ice cream cone at the end of the day for the child who earlier in the day cursed him and threw a brick through the front window. And that child deserves punishment and fury, and they get the opposite. That scenario represents our true position before God. God hasn't just taken neutral humanity and shown them favor. He's taken rebellious humanity and shown them favor. Grace means that God pours out the riches of his kindness on the sinner instead of the fury of his wrath. Grace means that God pours out on the sinner the riches of his kindness instead of the fury of his wrath. Why? Because God is a big softy who we can manipulate with big eyes and tears? Is that why God is gracious toward us? Because he's a big softy? No, but because Jesus is a great savior. The wrath is real. And it was poured out on Jesus instead of us. That's the gospel. That Jesus took the Father's wrath that rightly lay upon us. He took the punishment that you deserve for cursing at your father and throwing the brick through the window. Your crime was not overlooked and unpunished. It's just that Jesus stood in your place and took the punishment for you. Someone had to take the punishment because God is holy and just. But because Jesus has taken it for you, God's disposition toward you now is gracious because of Jesus. That's why we come here to worship him and sing to him and pray to him and learn what it means to be more like him. Okay, we deserve the fury of God's Wrath, we receive instead the riches of his kindness. Now, here we are at point two, okay? This is point two. What exactly are the riches of his kindness? What does that mean? What do we, what do we get from God? The, the parable of prodigal son is such a, a wonderful image to have in our mind as we think about these things. We think about what the prodigal received from his father. He, he received a ring and a robe and shoes and a feast. Those were the riches of the Father's kindness bestowed on him. Well, what does God give us? What are these riches of his kindness that he gives to us? There are a lot of things that we could mention in this respect. Chafer, that's Lewis Speary Chafer, who uh, founded the seminary I went to, Dallas Seminary. His magnum opus, this eight-volume systematic theology where he turns over almost every rock of theology. He listed 40 things that God bestows on us at salvation. 
40 different things. Did you know that there were 40 different things that you could point out that we receive from God when we're saved? We're not going to talk about 40. We're going to talk about two, okay? Two. And I chose these two because these are the two that Paul mentions at the end of Romans 8 when he's talking about everything that God has done for us. We're just going to talk about two. The riches of God's kindness demonstrated in these two things. Number one, justification. A right standing before God. He counts us as righteous. Not on the basis of good works. But on the basis of our faith in Jesus as the one who carries away our sin. Justification is a a right standing before God. Do you have a boss or a supervisor? Uh, Do you have a coach or a parent? Maybe a teacher? Do you ever wonder if maybe you're not in their good graces anymore? Do you ever suspect that you may have just fallen out of favor with them somehow? You know, they, they don't return your email. or They look at you a certain way. And you just go home wondering, like, am I okay with, with that person? Like, did I do something wrong? And, you know, some of us have a disposition where if we feel that way, that our superior is somehow unhappy with us or that we're not in a good standing with them, we will work and work and work and work and work and work and really try and go way above and beyond to try to get back in their good graces. I have those tendencies. Well, how do we do that with God? What if we suspect, rightly, that we're not in his good graces? That we don't have his favor. We may spend all of our lives working and working and working and working and trying to be good and often failing. How do we ever know if we have his smile? (laughs) That smile that we covet from God, like we covet the smile and the approval of our coach or our teacher or our boss that we're working for. How do we know if we can have God smile? We can know and we do know God justifies. He grants a right standing, a perfect, unchangeable, immovable, forever right standing to those who are trusting in the merits of his son, not their own merits. Not their own work to try to get in his good graces. They trust in the work of Jesus. That God has looked at him and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. A person must cast themselves upon Jesus. Justification is a gift. It's a gift of God's grace where he grants a right standing to a sinner who trusts in Jesus forever. You can never fall out of God's favor 
once you have placed your trust in his son. Even when you sin, that sin has been paid for by Jesus. And you may fall out of favor with your boss or your supervisor or your teacher or your coach. But you will not fall out of God's good graces. I want you to hear, I want you just to hear the word from Romans 8 and Romans 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Romans 4. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4. The Protestant Reformation was a a recovery of the precious doctrine of justification by faith. The same Luther, the same Martin Luther, who was so fearful because of his position before God, rediscovered this great comfort that God justifies a person not based on how good they are, but on the basis of their faith in Jesus. Justification, the first gift from the riches of God's kindness. We'll mention one more. This is the one that Paul mentions at the very end of Romans 8. Justification, yes, also glorification. Secondly, justification first. Secondly, glorification. This is a gift we almost never talk about. It's a little bit abstract. We're not quite sure what what to do with it. What What does that mean? Here's what we want to understand today about glorification. There is a a present, right now aspect to glorification. And there is a future, not yet aspect to glorification. Both. There's a right now, present aspect to glorification. Also something in the future. Usually we just think about the future one. But presently, right now. Hear this, Christian. We are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him. Notice the past tense verbs. Raised us up with him and seated us with him. It's already happened. This is the present reality of glorification. That's all I can say about it. I can't explain it to you any more than that. Because I don't know. Somehow we are presently glorified. It's true that we are seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. That's true. And that's all I can tell you.
But we can say a few more things about what it means for us practically. How it ministers to our hearts. Do you have a job that you feel like is beneath you? Maybe you're between jobs right now and you're working in a position that you just find intolerable because it's beneath you. Maybe you've been laid off. Did you get cut from the team? Was there a dance and no one asked you to go? Were you not invited? Are you, are you lonely? Are you cast off? Do you feel like you've been forgotten? And do you just feel like your self-worth is, is as low as it's ever been? I want you to understand that if you are in Christ, you have been glorified by God and given the place of honor in his presence. You have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's who you are. Whatever job you're working, whatever, whatever emotions you're holding in your heart because other people have not glorified you or included you and they have made you feel like a cast-off, this is true of you in Christ. You are in the best place. You are honored right now. Today. That's who you are. That's the present reality of glorification. There's a future reality too. This is the one that we usually think about. We will receive a glorified body a body that can never die in the resurrection. What is spiritually true of us now, you know, we've been talking about present glorification. That's a spiritual reality. We can't see it. We take it by faith that spiritually we're seated with Christ. That will be a physical reality someday. You will physically be in the presence of God in your new physical glorified body. That's the not yet aspect of glorification. Everything that's happened to Jesus will happen to you. Your body will be raised physically. You'll be given a new glorified body that can't die. You will be physically in the presence of God. All those things are true of Jesus. Now, he's gone on before us as the first fruits. And that's the future for everyone who is trusting in him. Now, if, um, if your mind goes to the same places that my mind goes, all of this is a little bit difficult to swallow, that we could think, okay, God's going to glorify us? Like, he has glorified us and will do that for us again? Our whole life is glorifying him. He's the one who receives all the glory. What are you talking about? That God glorifies people. How could we ever be deserving of that? We say things like, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. 
And here we're talking about glorification for the sinner. I don't know. I'm, I'm hesitant to say it. I'm hesitant to say anything about what I'm going to feel like in heaven, but I really do think that my overwhelming emotion and the, the dominant thought in my mind as I look around at all these unimaginable things that we will be experiencing in heaven, I really do think that the overwhelming thought in my heart will be, I don't deserve any of this. How did I get here? I was so unfaithful. I just did not treat God like I should have. And I'm here receiving this? I do not deserve this. And maybe that will be on your heart too, but I want you to know that very feeling will be the thing that fuels our worship for all eternity because we will have this deep sense that I am not worthy of any of this around me. And then we will look at him, the lamb, standing there and say, he is worthy. Yeah, I'm not, but there's the one who is. And he is the reason that I'm here. And the, the depth of our own recognition that we are not worthy will fuel our love for him as we look upon the worthy one and say, forever worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And that's what we will say forever. We'll take all that emotion, all that unworthiness and pour it out on him, cast our crowns at his feet. Glorification, something that only Jesus is worthy of, is given to the sinner from the riches of God's kindness to us. And those are just two of the things, justification and glorification. And there are at least 38 more. All right, here's the last thing. Let's talk about how we're changed. Could it possibly be, could it possibly be that people who have experienced this kind of graciousness from God could fail to themselves be gracious to other people. Is that possible? Is it possible that in a church, people could fail to be gracious to each other? The, the people who know uh, grace the best and have heard about it the longest? Could those people fail to be gracious to other people? I was talking with my favorite seminary professor. This has been eight or nine years ago. And uh, he had had a, a difficult experience as a pastor. He'd been a pastor for a while, and he had a hard experience, and he went into the academic world full-time. 
And he was talking with me about what it's like to be a pastor. The pastor that, or excuse me, the church that he had served at was called Grace Bible Church. And he said, tongue-in-cheek to me, Beware for any church that has the word grace in its name. Okay, now listen. I'm going to say it again. He said it tongue in cheek. He was making a point. There are lots of great churches that have grace in their name, including one in our own community. And two in the community that I just came from. He was making a point. We get the point, right? The point is, all too often, you don't find grace in a church. People do not treat each other graciously. They hadn't treated him graciously. The people who know the grace of God the best don't display it in their relationships with each other. The message of grace hasn't affected their lives where the rubber meets the road. So we have to ask the question, what if after being treated this way by God, lavished with all this kindness that we have not deserved, what if while worshiping this God, we are ungracious people toward each other and toward those outside the church? How horrible would that be? God save us from that! that that would ever be true at Prairie Hill or at any church for that matter? How do we make sure that that's not true of us? Let's simply say this and, and then we're done, okay? We get used to treating people in accordance with what they deserve. That's how we measure how to treat people. We treat them in accordance with what they deserve. That's the natural human thing to do. If they've been rude or said something hurtful or they ran over my ideas at a meeting or they're gossiping about me or they've failed to live up to the Christian bar that I've set for everybody who claims to be a Christian, if they're not rising to the level of that bar, well, then... I start excluding them. I start giving them the cold shoulder. I stop praying for them. I start talking to other people about them. I just use lots of subtle messages so they get the point that they are a bad person and they need to stop this. And maybe if I do this and treat, this, treat them this way long enough, they'll get the message and they'll change. And they need to suffer a little bit for what they've done to me. And if I don't do that, if I don't play that part in their life, how are they going to figure it out that they're a bad person and change? So it's my job, right, to make sure they get the point. We treat people in accordance with what they deserve. Okay, when we value grace, we stop treating people in accordance with what they deserve. And we treat people in accordance with the character of God. We stop treating people in accordance with what they deserve. That's the natural thing to do. That's the easy thing to do. 
and we instead treat people in accordance with the character of God. That means when I feel like you have sinned against me, my treatment of you is not in accordance with what I think you deserve for that offense. Instead, it's according to the character of God. That means I keep lavishing kindness on you, patience, respect, honor, love, continually toward you because that reflects the character of my God who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, who sends his reign on the just and the unjust. You know, that has always been God's purpose for his people, whether it's the nation of Israel or whether it's the church. It's always been God's purpose for his people that they not just know his character, but they also reflect his character. And that's what we get to do. That's what makes us distinct as God's people. That is our saltiness. Do not give that away, church. The most beautiful thing in the world has been committed to us. It's our property. Grace. It's ours. We get to picture it to the world. That's our distinctness. That's our saltiness. Don't give it away. You have a part to play, whether it's someone in these walls or someone outside these walls. The next time you have that choice of how am I going to respond to this person who's done this, we want to think not in accordance to what they deserve, but in accordance with the character of my God. God the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Amen. Father, mercy would have been enough. It would have been enough. But you've gone way past that and treated us as sons and daughters. Lavished all the affection of a father on us. Because of your wonderful son, Jesus, how we thank you for him and how we pray in his holy name. Amen.